Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by an educational grant from Nutricia. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler. Today, I welcome Dr. Bronwyn Copeland to discuss mild cognitive impairment, what the primary care team needs to know. Bronwyn is a consultant psychiatrist at the Mental Health Services for Older People at Tauranga Hospital. She is also a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland in the Department of Psychological Medicine. Kira Bronwyn, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So mild cognitive impairment. Primary care physicians play a crucial role in the detection and management of this. I wonder if we can start, please, with a definition. So mild cognitive impairment is basically an intermediate state between normal aging and dementia. So I guess we need to know what the difference is between the two and the definitions of dementia and what is normal aging. So we can expect that with time, unfortunately, we'll all deteriorate to some extent in terms of our cognition, but not all of us will get dementia and not all of us will get mild cognitive impairment. So with age, we can expect that we may actually get smarter in terms of our vocabulary and we may even get smarter in terms of our general knowledge. But we do tend to slow down a little bit in our processing speed, as well as sometimes forgetting of names and some slight forgetfulness in terms of episodic memory. But generally, our visuospatial memory stays pretty good. We can also become a little bit more rigid in our thinking. But generally with age, there's no deterioration in a person's functioning and the, the changes in cognition are really quite slight. Then with dementia, obviously, that's on the the other side of the spectrum where there's marked changes in a person's cognition, whether it's um, memory or language, visual spatial function, et cetera. And that has an impact on the person's ability to function independently. So mild cognitive impairment is really in the intermediate state. There is clear objective evidence on testing that there is a cognitive deficit, but there's no changes in the person's day-to-day functioning. And those changes in the cognitive deficit or those changes in a person's cognition can't be accounted for by any other conditions, such as like strokes or tumors or um, a subdural or sleep apnea or depression or medication changes. So that's basically mild cognitive impairment or MCI. Great. Thank you. So how many people will be affected by this thinking, statistically speaking? Okay. So, well, if we think about it, Dementia is basically a disease of aging. So the greatest risk factor for developing dementia is age. And as we age, the prevalence of dementia increases substantially. And as MCI is a risk state for developing dementia, it therefore makes sense that the prevalence will increase with age as well. So in New Zealand, we don't actually have any great prevalence studies on MCI or dementia. It's really estimates. But various studies have looked at sort of worldwide estimates of MCI, and it's thought that anything between 12 to 18 percent of people over the age of 60 will have mild cognitive impairment. So if we're looking at the 2013 census data, there there were about over 800,000 over the age of um, 60. So if we're giving estimates based on data from other countries where the estimate is anything between 12 to 18 percent, we'd be looking around about the 100,000 mark. Great, thank you. So you mentioned a continuum, normal ageing to mild cognitive impairment, and you mentioned function. So tell us the difference between normal ageing and MCI. 
Yeah, well, normal aging, like I said, it's important to be aware, firstly, of what the individual's baseline is, because we all differ in terms of our education. It's also important to be aware of hearing and vision deficits that can also change with, with time and may present as, oh, the person's cognitively a bit uh, knocked off, but actually it might be a result of hearing or, or sight. So, yeah, we can expect with age that we will become slower in our ability to retrieve facts, so a slower processing speed. We may become a little bit more forgetful. We should remain pretty good with our visuospatial function, and we can expect that we may become a little bit more rigid in our thinking. But everyone is different. There's a huge amount of heterogeneity amongst individuals. But the key factor is that it doesn't affect functioning in a significant way. Great. So MCI, does it always progress to Alzheimer's disease or dementia? And what is the natural history of the disease process? Okay. So again, I think it's important to remember that MCI is an at-risk state. So it's a really great opportunity to educate the patient about this. No, it doesn't always progress to dementia. And there's varying estimates in terms of prognosis. So, you know, studies have shown anything between 5 to 10% per year, but then other studies have shown about 15% per year. So one said to be at least three to five times greater risk of developing dementia compared to a person who's got no cognitive impairment. However, there have also been studies that have shown that some people even revert to normal cognition. And also, you know, if we're only looking at 5 to 10% converting per year, there's a good portion of people who remain stable. So, no, not everyone progresses and it's very difficult to predict who will progress. People, obviously, who've got more uh, vascular risk factors, patients who've got more severe or have got more severe cognitive impairment, where there's evidence of biomarkers of um, disease, they're more like, likely to um, progress. So a patient presents to us with a memory concern in primary care. A thorough history is always imperative, but what clues particularly are we looking for in that history? Part of the history in anyone who has any cognitive complaints is not just the history from the patient, but the history from collateral is key because often the patient might have forgotten what they've forgotten or they're in complete denial. And it's also helpful to get a really good baseline from the patient's um, relative or whoever you're getting the collateral from. So you can actually distinguish whether there's been a change. So there's two really important aspects to the history, but collateral is really, really important. And then just thinking through sort of a structured sort of approach when you're getting the history in terms of thinking about the cognitive domains, in terms of memory, episodic memory, thinking about language, visual, spatial function, executive function. But also trying to tease out if there's any symptoms of depression that could be masquerading as dementia. And then also getting a very clear idea on their function and whether there's a change in their function. So it's just basically about getting a general history, in particular with cognition. And then ruling out the differentials. Yeah, that's yes, absolutely. Yeah. So as far as validated screening tools, what's available and what would you recommend? As you know, across New Zealand, we've got the dementia pathways and all the DHBs, and they're really much the same, but with slight variations, just reflecting um, different services available in the different DHBs. But the decision was made that we would use the mini ACE um, a number of years ago. Previously, the pathways were all doing the mocker, 
which was great and it's a great tool, but unfortunately due to cost issues and copyright, that's no longer available. So the Mini Ace is the one that we recommend. And it's really quite useful if we all use the same tool, because then if patients move across districts or if they come from primary into secondary care, at least we can have the same benchmark. Often the RUDAS is really helpful as well, especially in patients where English is not a first language or they've had limited education, it can be really useful. It's not uncommon that we've had patients that have performed really badly on a mini ACE, and then you do the RUDAS with them and they score in the normal range. So thinking of investigations, what should we be ordering in primary care and why are we ordering these particular things? Okay, so obviously when a person's got a cognitive complaint, you need to rule out anything else that could be presenting as a cognitive complaint. So all the dementia care pathways will have all the full full house of dementia bloods. Again, making sure that there's not another cause for their cognitive difficulties. So that's the reason why we do that. We also like to, um, obviously CRP is part of it, just the whole range of dementia bloods. We always check B12 and folate. And again, this is a bit controversial and everyone's got a slightly different take on it. My feeling is that you know, B12 is something that's easily replaced. It's not going to cause the patient any harm. And there have been studies coming out of the Oxford group that we really should be aiming for higher levels of B12, especially in the under 75s, because they've shown that in those with low B12s and high homocysteines, just replacing it by B6, B12 and folate, you can reduce the rate of hippocampal atrophy in those under the age of 75. But other studies have not been able to validate that. So yeah, B12 and folate is important to check. And one could consider homocysteine. I know some memory clinics overseas routinely do that, but I don't think it's necessarily advised here in New Zealand or maybe frowned upon. So it's um, personal take, I guess. And then obviously imaging, looking for evidence of any space occupying lesions, vascular lesions, as well as looking for evidence of any focal lobar atrophy, which may help with the diagnosis. Often you can see hippocampal atrophy, but not always. And that's often is the first sign of an Alzheimer's type dementia. So Bronwyn, I wonder if we can move to management for a moment. So are there any proven prevention strategies? Yeah, so we know that, as we said before, that MCI is a precursor for dementia. And the Lancet has been really vocal in preventable strategies or um, reducing risk factors. And initially in 2014, they published a report saying that if we could reduce seven risk factors, we could reduce the worldwide prevalence by a good 40%. And this then later got increased um, in 2020 to 12 modifiable risk factors. So, I mean, that's better than any drug, especially if you don't have any disease modifying treatment. So it's really important that these modifiable risk factors are addressed throughout the lifespan. You know, it needs to be starting at a young age and we need to be educating our children that these are the things that are important. And these risk factors are many of the vascular risk factors. So untreated hypertension, diabetes, sedentary lifestyle, obesity, depression is a risk factor. Um, Smoking is a big one. Head injuries, social isolation is also another one. Hearing impairment. So there's a number of things that really could be addressed and need to be addressed not just when a person's in their 60s, 70s or 80s, but actually throughout the lifespan. And I think this is a great opportunity for GPs to be able to do that. But it's probably also something that needs to come across in policy and public health. 
and educating the children when they're at school about looking after their brains, not just when they're 70 or 80, but all the way through. I wondered about diet. Is there any um, evidence for a particular diet? So the most evidence that we've got is from the Mediterranean diet. So where there seems to be an association where the people who adhere um, strongly to a Mediterranean diet have the lowest risk of dementia. And it's also associated with better mental health, but also number of vascular risk factors as well. So the Mediterranean diet is predominantly a plant-based diet, which relies on you know lots of plants, legumes, nuts, seeds, whole grains, and very little red meat, none of the processed food or junk that we put into our mouths, and using olive oil as your main uh, fat. Then there's also the um, DASH diet, which is a dietary advice to stop hypertension, and then the MIND diet, which is basically the Mediterranean and the DASH diet combined. And basically, the unifying feature for all three of these diets is that they are predominantly plant-based. It's all whole foods. It's making every mouthful count in terms of feeding your brain. It's all low in saturated fats, um, using olive oil as your main fat, um, lots of leafy greens, lots of colors of the rainbow. And the MIND diet is quite prescriptive in terms of the amount of berries. It's, it says you've got to have two portions of berries a week. So that's a slight variation, whereas the others are quite liberal with fruit, whereas the MIND is just saying you do berries instead. When you actually read the MIND diet, it's actually quite prescriptive in terms of uh, it, it divides it into two groups of food, 10 food groups that they encourage and five that you avoid. So basically the five that you avoid are sort of your saturated fats, your butter, your processed pastries, takeaways, refined oils, and all that, all the stuff that we know is bad for us. And it has the 10 groups of the food we know that is good for us. Can I just ask, there's a lot of um, coconut oil around at the moment. What's your thoughts on that? So coconut oil is a medium chain triglyceride, and it comes from the fact that some studies have shown evidence that in patients with Alzheimer's disease, they don't process or um, metabolize glucose as well in the brain as what they do ketones. So it's thought that coconut oil provides that ketone or that medium chain triglyceride, which is fuel for the brain. So yes, you can get medium chain triglyceride supplementation. I think as long as you're not drinking truckloads of the stuff, you'll be okay. I don't think we're at a stage where we could say you definitely need to take it. I think if you're taking lots of saturated fats, according to the Mind and Mediterranean diet, they would oppose that. But then you also get proponents of the ketogenic diet, which has shown some benefit in Alzheimer's disease, but not in large randomized controls. I, I don't think there's, there's not as much evidence as there is for the Mediterranean or the Mind diet as there is for ketogenic diets. But I think if a ketogenic diet is done relatively healthily, you can get the benefits in terms of all the plant-based food, in terms of you know, your, big, your leafy greens, the colors of the rainbow vegetables, your berries, etc. So I think if it can be done healthily, it's not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's better than someone living on KFC and donuts. Roman, just discussing management of patients with MCI, Firstly, are there any risk reduction or lifestyle strategies for prevention that we can recommend to patients? Okay, so exercise is really crucial. So it's not only important for depression and physical frailty and increasing muscle strength, but it's shown to be regenerative for the brain. 
it increases the amount of BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like fertilizer for the brain. So it's really important that we start getting our patients active, not just aerobic exercise, but also some resistance training and also some balance training because often with, um, with age comes increased risk of falls. So the Australian guidelines recommend at least 150 minutes per week of aerobic exercise and then also putting in a couple of sessions of some resistance training as well. So exercise is really, really crucial and the patient will have, you know, they will age better, there'll be decreased frailty. It's shown to be really helpful in treating depression, especially in the elderly. So, you know, can't rave on more about exercise, really, really important. So there's the exercise, there's the diet. Social stimulation and cognitive stimulation is also said to be helpful. Obviously, it helps prevent depression, but also keeps the brain active and busy. So really, really important, those strategies as well. Thinking about medications now for a moment, in this mild cognitive impairment state, are there any medications or supplements that are useful? So the cholinesterase inhibitors have shown not to be indicated in mild cognitive impairment. They've actually shown to cause more harm. So it's important not to give a person a cholinesterase inhibitor in MCI. In terms of individual nutrients, like we've discussed, you know, omega-3 fatty acids, the diet is really um, inconsistent. Though the Mediterranean diet, mine diet and dash diet are high in omega-3, but then you're getting lots of other nutrients together with it. The B vitamins, again, there could be some evidence for decreasing the rate of hippocampal atrophy in those with raised homocysteine and under the age of 75. So it's important to try and optimize that. But there's been inconclusive um, results really for all single nutrients. The only sort of supplement is that of um, Suvenade, which is the multi-nutrient drink, which basically consists of sort of the multi-nutrients that make up your synapses. So the underlying theory is that in Alzheimer's disease, there is a breakdown of synapses and therefore you need to provide the constituents or the ingredients for that. And that's what the Suvenade does. So it's got B12, B6, folate, uridine, choline, uh, I think some vitamin E, yeah, and a range of others. And basically, it did show over a three-year period that those that took the Suvenade, there was a slower rate of decline in hippocampal atrophy, and there was a slower rate of decline in the CDR sum of boxes, which is a measure of function in people with mild cognitive impairment. The effect size was small to medium, so not huge, and the person needed to be taking it for at least three years. And given the fact that there really isn't any other disease modifying treatment or medication, this could be considered part of the treatment. But I would say that patients need to see it as just a part of the treatment, it's not the whole treatment. We don't want the patient just sitting on the couch eating donuts and drinking their Suvenade thinking everything's going to be okay. Actually, we need to be um, offering a holistic approach where exercise is encouraged, a healthy diet, social isolation is addressed, your cognitive stimulation is important, and trying to address the vascular risk factors. And then Suvenade could be considered as part of it. Many of our patients are, a lot of them do take supplements. So spending a bit on Suvenade when actually there is shown to be a small to medium effect size in your CDR summer boxes, in other words, function as well as rates of hippocampal atrophy um, is something that, that needs to be discussed with a patient and they can make their informed choice. 
Roman, I wonder if we can just talk about Suvenade for a moment. Firstly, does a patient need a prescription? And you mentioned uh, cost. Do you have any idea of the cost? Yeah, so the patient doesn't need a prescription. Um, they can just get it from the pharmacy or from the website. And it's usually about $5 a day, which for some patients would be a lot, you know, if they're on superannuation. For other patients, it's manageable. I mean, it's certainly far more affordable than uh, the new anti-amyloid drug that's had its uh, yeah contentious acceptance by the FDA. Great. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Thinking about diagnosis for a moment, Bronwyn, um, mild cognitive impairment, can we diagnose this in primary care? And then once it has been diagnosed, are we able to manage it or do we need to refer on? Yes, MCI definitely can be managed in primary care. I think the difficulty with any elderly patient with cognitive complaints is that it does take time. And I know primary care is always pressured for time. But yes, it, it definitely needs to be managed in primary care because often the primary care physician has a good relationship with the patient already and, and knows sort of what their baseline is. Also, the fact that we've got an aging population in New Zealand means that we're going to have a huge amount of patients with mild cognitive impairment and they can't all be managed in specialist care. And the primary care um, physicians are very well equipped in terms of knowledge and expertise to manage these patients. And with good pathways and supports and processes in place, I think they can be managed very effectively there. I think what's really good about managing primary care, managing MCI in primary care is that you can manage the patient holistically, like we said. You know, it's an opportunity to actually take stock of all their risk factors and to change things that potentially could reduce their chance of developing dementia, but also will improve their physical health as well as their mental health. So that's really important. I think what's also important is just not to forget about the patient and to make sure that one checks on them in six to 12 months time to see whether there has been a change. Often in the memory clinic, we end up with patients with MCI and we do just that. We recall them in six to 12 months time just to see what's happening with regards to their memory, but also give them an open invitation to contact us sooner should things deteriorate. Those are great points. And actually, I find often in my clinic that uh, it's the family I end up supporting a lot more than the, the patient. So it is important to have those regular check-in intervals, I agree. You've already mentioned the outcome as far as percentages. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about for us to be aware of when thinking about MCI? I think what's also really important is also... And again, it's difficult, and I fall short of this in my clinic all the time, but just trying to provide education for the family, not just the family who are looking after the individual, but actually for the rest of the family in terms of their risk factors. So, you know, the children of these people might be thinking, oh, well, you know, I don't want this to happen to me. What could I do to stop that? So actually providing them with the education in terms of lifestyle strategies that can ensure or reduce their chances of developing MCI or dementia in the future is important because I think if we can take sort of um, the Maori worldview or Maori view of health in terms of um, the four walls where, where whānau is really important, I think part of the whānau is actually providing that education for them to make good choices for the future as well. Absolutely, that's a fantastic point. 
And to conclude our podcast today, Bronwyn, some take-home messages, please, for our listeners. Yeah, so firstly, I'd like to just say a huge thanks to primary care, because I know in secondary services, we rely hugely on, on you guys, and you do an amazing job looking after the patients. And I understand it's a, it's a really difficult job, especially if you've got limited time, and some of the patients are really complicated. So firstly, thank you for all of this. I think we all, we all have the same agenda, wanting the best for our patients. Yeah, the take-home messages would really be, you know, GPs or primary care physicians are in a really good position to change the trajectory of the patient in terms of physical health as well as mental health in terms of cognitive health as well. It's also a chance to educate the family members and caregivers about their potential risks. And then the final take-home point, I guess, is just to not forget about the patient, which can be easy to do, but to reassess in six to 12 months time and to invite them to come back should things change sooner. Sometimes we often have, we have an inkling that the patient's going to end up in dementia, but we just don't have enough evidence. There's not enough decline in functioning to say that they are going to develop dementia, but you, you have a gut feeling that this is the direction they're going to go, but we just have to wait until, until they've reached that point. I think with time, things will change with um, the addition of biomarkers, which we don't have available here in New Zealand uh, routinely. And as we don't have a disease modifying treatment as yet, um, then things will change. But certainly at this point, it's a clinical diagnosis and it's a chance to change some of the risk factors. If you're a New Zealand GP and you'd like to claim CPD points, please fill in the reflection of learning form. You'll also find a list of resources used in making this podcast on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for joining us today.